Good morning, kiddos. It is Friday, March 12th. So, happy Friday to you. By the time you listen to this, it might be the weekend already. So, I hope you had a good weekend. Or if you're, if this is Monday, I hope, uh, I hope you had the start of a good week, and also a good weekend. I'm getting closer and closer to coming home, which makes me very happy and full of joy. Because that is the real half of my life I get to spend with you guys. This isn't the real half of my life up here. Although, I try and make the most of it. I try and do the best I can. And enjoy the people up here. And stay in touch with you guys. But being home with you is what I'm looking for. So, that's my two week long weekend. So, Mommy's, one of Mommy's favorite books of the Bible is the book of James. How about we read the book of James next? I am going to read from my copy of the New King James Version. If you've got the NIV, that's great. Whatever copy you have, um, that's totally fine. So, let's start reading in the book of James. And I'll read the subject headings too. So the first one is just the greeting to the twelve tribes. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Next heading is called Profiting from Trials. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, that's the end of that section. And all God is saying there is, ask God for wisdom. First, you have to recognize that you need wisdom. That's one of the biggest things. Don't think like you know everything, but ask for wisdom. And then believe God is going to give it to you. Don't ask for wisdom and then be all uh, apprehensive and... Um, worrying, don't worry. When you need guidance and wisdom and an answer or a way forward with something in life, pray and ask God and know that He loves you and He's your Heavenly Father and that He's going to give you the answers and lead you on the path that you're looking for. Okay, next uh, next heading is the perspective of rich and poor. Verse 9. 
Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Next subject heading, Loving God Under Trials. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Okay, kids, there, there in that section, two quick things. God doesn't tempt you to, bat, to do bad things. Nope, your own flesh and your own desires. And uh, your own... You are when you are drawn away by your own desires. That's when you're tempted. And then also, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights. Okay. So then, my beloved, this is verse nineteen. So then, my beloved brethren, my beloved brethren. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Last section in chapter 1 is called, Doers, Not Hearers Only. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart this one's religion is useless 
pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Wow. Okay, that's the end of chapter 1. There's a ton of things in there. Having, uh, hearing God's word, but not doing God's word. I mean, this says that you're deceiving. We are deceiving ourselves. And if you think you have religion, if you think you're following God and doing the right things, James says, if you do that, but you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart. And you don't have any religion. You don't, your religion is useless if you, if you don't bridle your tongue. And kids, I need to bridle my tongue. I, I am not, this is not a perfect, perfect daddy reading God's word to his kids who need to learn how to be obedient. This is, your, this is God preaching to your daddy just as much, if not more, than you kiddos. God wants us to bridle our tongue. He expects us to have control over what we say. Not that, you know, what you're bridling, <laughs> you know, what you want to say. Let me rephrase that. God understands that we're going to get upset, that we're going to have strong opinions, that we're going to want to correct people. But, we don't correct. We The only time we correct is when we can correct gently and lovingly. And when we can speak truth and love. And we always have to bridle our tongue. And then he says, hey, here's what real religion looks like. If you're out there visiting orphans and widows in their trouble. And also keeping yourself unspotted from the world. A lot in that first chapter, so we'll stop there for now. Um, I'm going to go to work and come back and read a chapter of Wilder King. Love you, kiddos. Have a blessed night, and I will talk to you later. All right, kiddos. It's 7.30 at night for me. Back 14 hours later after a fun and action-packed day. Hope you guys had a good day too. So, where were we in the Wilder King trilogy, book three? We just finished chapter 14. And what happened? It's kind of a big chapter because Aiden has finally accepted. The reality that he is the Wilder King and that all of these other people who believe he's the Wilder King are his responsibility to lead. I'll just read you the last part of the chapter here. They want to follow you. That's what is unfolding before you today. 
You didn't ask for it. You didn't seek it. You didn't want it. But here it is. These men mean to follow you. They need to follow you. Will you lead them? I'm not their king, Aiden said. The vein on Errol's forehead appeared again. Stop making excuses, Aiden! The vehemence of his father's response surprised Aiden. I never said you were anybody's king. Errol continued. I asked if you would lead these men. You're not a boy anymore. You're a man. Don't make any more excuses. Just tell me whether or not you will lead these men. In that moment of challenge, in that moment of seeming conflict, Aiden felt the blessing of his father pass to him. Yes, father, he said, I will lead them. Errol nodded, pleased with his son's answer. Good, he said. Just because you're leading, that doesn't mean you can't follow too. Lord willing, you'll lead these men to follow King Darrow. Chapter 15 A History Lesson A History Lesson Oh, and... Chrissy or Sonia, I forget who always asks, we are 57% of the way through the book at chapter 15. 57%. Okay. Within a week, all the militias had arrived at Sinking Canyons. 3,600 men from every corner of Cornwall. Some had military experience. Many had fought the Perthans at the Battle of Bonifay Plain six years earlier. Some had actually been with King Darrow's army at last camp when Aidan came out of the Fiji Fen with Percy and Dobro. They came with stories of a kingdom in disarray. The army had fallen apart in the weeks since King Darrow abandoned his invasion of the Fiji Fen. The king rode back to Tambluff alone leaving no orders for his officers. The men just wandered back home to resume their lives they had left when they were forcibly drafted into the army. A few soldiers, in the absence of leadership, had taken to looting, highway robbery, and other crimes. Sinking canyons could no longer be properly called a hideout. There was no way of concealing the presence of so many men, even in the maze of caves and crevices. It was unmistakably a military outpost. Aidan worked with his father, his brothers, and the noblemen, Athelbert and Cleland, to organize the militias into more efficient fighting units. They worked on the basics of sword fighting and archery, drilled quite a bit on troop movements, like flanking the enemy, orderly retreat, and field signals. But most of their time was devoted to tasks that related specifically to the kind of battle they expected to be fighting. They studied the geography of sinking canyons, learning every crevice, every finger, 
every tower and chimney, every fold in the earth that might provide cover in combat. They reviewed plans for ambushes and for search and rescue operations. They worked on tracking techniques and habits of concealment, always walking up the braided stream whenever possible, sweeping away tracks with pine boughs after walking through soft sand. Dobro offered special seminars on Fiji methods of camouflage. But more than anything, the new recruits spent their time digging. Under the miners' guidance, they dug tunnel after tunnel for shelter and storage. They dug out hiding places. They dug out wells. On more than one occasion, they dug each other out after poorly dug tunnels caved in. The old-timers, the original band of Sinking Canyon Outlaws, didn't have as many tuggled, tug, blah, 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 excuse me here, didn't have as many tunnel-digging responsibilities as the new recruits. They maintained their interest in Jasper's archaeological dig. One day, Arliss made a discovery at the diggings that set the whole camp abuzz. It had been days since anyone had found anything more interesting than splintered logs or pieces of broken crockery. Then Arliss noticed a small, shiny disc peeking out from a shovelful of sand he was about to toss on the discard heap. It was a silver coin in surprisingly good shape, considering it had been buried for many years. He immediately ran with it to Jasper, who was cataloging their findings, seated at a small campaign table he had taken from his father's cave. Fascinating, said Jasper, admiring the bright silver. Then his eyes grew wide as he made sense of the date on the coin. Am I reading this right? He marveled. Is this coin three hundred years old? Percy scrutinized the date, sure that Jasper must be mistaken. It was plain enough. Percy scratched his head. I don't see how, he said. It was barely a hundred years ago when the first people got to this island. Hmph, Dobro grunted. A long time before the civilizers showed up, there was plenty of folks on this here island. Fiji folks. Aiden pointed at the silver coin. Does that look like something a Fiji would carry around? He asked. I've never seen a Fiji with a money purse. Course not, Dobro said with some haughtiness. Even Chief Larbo's band, when under the spell of cold shiny knives, axes, and shovels, never had any use for cold, shiny money. I was only making a point, Dobro continued. Just because there ain't no civilizers on an island don't mean there ain't no people. I take your point, said Percy, somewhat chastened. Jasper was still studying the ancient coin. It must have been made from the purest silver, for it was hardly tarnished. The portrait on the front was still easy to make out. A thick-set man with an enormous beard and a four-cornered hat or 
crown on his head. Jasper's finger traced a pair of branching sticks that appeared to sprout from the figure's head. Are these supposed to be tree limbs behind his head? He asked. Is this some kind of forest king? Errol took the coin from his son and examined it. Those aren't tree limbs, he said. Those are antlers. So this is... Jasper began. His lips were parted in astonishment. Errol nodded. I think it must be. All twenty of the men at the diggings looked expectantly from Errol to Jasper and back again, waiting for an explanation. But the father and his studious son both fell silent. Brows creased in perplexity. This must be what? asked Percy. This must be who? King Halvard the Antlered, said Aidan, the light finally dawning on him. The first king of Halverty. Arliss and several of the other greasy cave boys looked blank. There, they were no scholars. Where's Halverty? Arliss asked. It's on the continent, said Jasper, or used to be. Most of the first people to come to Cornwall. Most of the first civilizers, Dobro corrected. Right, most of the first civilizers, Jasper continued, acknowledging Dobro's correction, were Halverdens who left the continent when their kingdom finally fell to the Perthans in the middle of last century. Our ancestors were Halverdens. Yours probably were too, Arliss. Jasper pointed to the face on the coin his father still held. Halverty got its name from this man, Halvard the Antlered. It was he who first united the warring tribes of the continent's eastern plains and great forest into a single kingdom to fight the Perthan hordes that were sweeping in from the north and west. But Arliss was only minimally interested in continental history. He wanted to know more about this Halvard. But how in the world... He asked, did he get antlers? Jasper laughed. He probably just attached a pair to his helmet. His crown was decorated with antlers, too. But he went down in the old lore as Halvard the Antlered, as if the antlers had sprouted from his head. Like Harvo Hornhead, Dobro offered, as if everyone knew exactly what he was talking about. Like who? asked Arliss. Though Arliss famously had the miner's head for finding his way underground, he had no head for history. He was already feeling overwhelmed by Jasper's discourse without adding Fichi history to the mix. You know, Chief Harvo, the first Fichi chief, said Dobro, a little exasperated at the poor miner's ignorance. Head like a buck deer, body like a he-feechy. Arliss still looked blank. Dobro continued. Harvo was the one who caught six turkeys at one time. 
he put his head down and run through a flock of them, skewered the rascals on his antlers. Then he roasted them, just leaned out over the fire with them dangling from his antlers. Everybody was listening, but to Dobro's chagrin, only Aiden knew what he was talking about. If you ain't the ignorantest bunch of know-nothings I ever run into, Dobro exclaimed, what kind of history do they teach you people? Aiden had heard the legends about Chief Harvo when he, while he was living in the Fichi Fen, but he had never before considered the similarities between Harvo and Halvard the Antlered. Errol was holding the coin at arm's length, trying to focus enough to read the inscription on the back. V E Z He struggled to read. He handed the coin to Brennus. Your eyes are younger, he said. What does this say? Uh, it's not just your eyes, father, Brennus said. This is hard to read. V E Z something 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 N D Aiden pointed to a blurred spot in the middle of the inscription. Is that an L? Percy squinted at the coin. V E Z something L something N D Errol shouted Vezeland Vezeland My grandfather used to sing ballads from the old country about Vezeland So this coin began Aiden speaking slowly because he wanted to be sure he had it right This coin came from the place you call Vezeland some 300 years ago, 200 years before the first civilizers came over from Halverty. Looks that way, Jasper answered. But how did it get here? Maybe a coin collector dropped it, Percy suggested though not very confidently. Aiden looked around at the desolate landscape, an, in, an inhospitable environment for coin collectors. Doesn't seem very likely. Maybe this is an old Fiji settlement, said Brennus. Maybe Fiji's traded with Veselenders 300 years ago, before any civilizer came over. Dobro scoffed at the idea. This ain't no Fiji settlement. Fiji folks don't cut down trees to make cabins. He pointed at the corroded plowshare they had found earlier. Fiji folks don't scratch up the ground with cold, shiny blades. And Fiji folks don't live in holes in the ground. Dobro had a point. Nothing they had found at this site suggested Fiji folk. Maybe we've always had it wrong, said Percy. Maybe civilizers got here earlier than we thought. We haven't been wrong about that, 
Errol insisted. All four of my grandparents came in the first flotilla from the continent. I know for a fact that there, were, there weren't any civilizers on this island when they got here. Aiden took the coin in his hand and wondered if he would ever see through to its puzzling origins. After morning drills a few days later, Harold took Aiden aside. I think it's time you went to see this Linwood, he said, the chief of the Aidenites, the chair of the, what is it, the secret committee for the ascendancy of the Wilder King? I thought he might come to see us, Aiden said. From what I know about of Linwood, said Errol, he's not the sort to go to that much trouble if there's someone he can pay or cajole to do it for him. Who is he? He's a merchant and a very wealthy one. Lives with his wife and daughters in one of the finest houses in Tambluff. If he's so rich... What does he want with a new king? Sounds like things have gone well enough under the old king. Errol thought on the question. I don't really know the man. We met only once or twice, so most of what I know of him is secondhand. But he strikes me as the kind of man who wants to have a king who owes him a favor. He's done well enough under King Darrow, but... Darrow doesn't know him from Adam. He'd risk a charge of treason for the satisfaction of being in a king's inner circle. Is he a bad man? Aiden asked. He's a man who doesn't know his own heart. He probably tells himself he does everything for the good of Cornwald. And he probably believes it. Now that he's given you an army, it's probably only fair that you should tell him where you stand with things. Errol thought for a moment, then his eyes brightened with an idea. Dobro's been dying to get out of these canyons. Time to leave these neighborhoods, said Aiden. Right. If anything would throw cold water on Linwood's desire for a wilder king, it might be having a genuine Fichi in his house. Why don't you take Dobro along? Okay, that's the end of chapter 15. The next chapter is called Ma Pearl's Public House. Ma Pearl's Public House. And we'll pick that up another time. I want to go back here to something that Errol just said. Remember, they're just just now they were talking about uh, what's his name, Linwood, and Aiden asks, "Is he a bad man?" And how did Errol answer? He's a man who doesn't know his own heart. He probably tells himself he does everything for the good of Cornwald, and he probably believes it. So, that was very interesting. Errol is obviously a wise man who understands people. And he said he's a man who doesn't understand his own heart. And kiddos, 
God wants us to understand our own hearts. And there's even a verse in the Bible that says, um, oh goodness, how does it go? For a man's heart is wicked and desperately evil. Who can know it? I'll look that uh, I'll look that uh, chapter and verse up for you. But God even says to know your own heart and to guard your own heart. And this kind of goes with uh, what I had talked about, I don't know, while, a while back about uh, taking all your thoughts captive. Have you guys heard of that? Taking your thoughts captive? Anyways, we can talk about that later. But as you get older and as you become more aware of your thoughts and what your, what's in your heart and what's in your mind you will get to know your heart better and manage your thoughts and your emotions and you'll examine your intentions. Oh, what's that verse in Hebrews again? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, capable of dividing soul from spirit, bone and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you see how all these puzzle pieces are coming together, you guys? About our hearts and how we have to understand what's in our hearts and fill our hearts and our minds with good things and even sometimes expect bad things to want to jump out of our hearts and our minds and to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Thank you for listening. And I like this book. It's starting to get pretty good. It looks like we're really building up to something here. I am going to go upload this so you kids can listen to it. And I love you very much. I hope you have a great night. I hope you have very sweet dreams where God just fills your heart with hope and joy and love and shows you what heaven's like. Night, night, kiddos. Love you.